Well, it's good to see everybody this morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Justin, and I will be speaking today. I actually forgot to put the verses on the slides last night, so you're just going to have to bear with me as I read, or you can uh, read this thing called the Bible. You can download it on your phone if you don't have it. Uh, you just put Bible in the app search, and you should get about a million. You can pick one. But we are in the third week of our series called Gospels. Um, and with my forgetting of the slides, I forgot to put up our graphic too. But it, it has the word Gospels with a cross or an X going through the S. And that is the message of this entire series as we go through Galatians, is in this letter, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, he is fighting for the gospel, the true gospel, because people have come and taught the church after he planted this church, and they started, and they try to teach them a new way, or a, a, a different way, and, or a, as we would say, a different gospel. And Paul, this entire letter, is him speaking to the church in Galatia and telling them, hey, there's only one gospel. And it's the one gospel that I taught you when I was there. And he, he starts off this letter incredibly angry and frustrated, which we really don't get often from Paul. Usually he starts off his letters with thanksgiving, with joy, with a great opening prayer. But this time he starts off his letter with, what is going on over there? Have you fallen so quickly away from the truth? And so we're in our third week. The first week we talked about his opening in the letter. And then last week and this week we're talking about Paul's testimony. Part of his defense on why he has the authority to speak to the church in Galatia is who he is as a person and what God has done in his life. And last week we shared about how God changed Paul's life. We learned about this man that's incredibly important to us and the New Testament itself. And we learned about where he came from. He used to be a man named Saul who was the chief persecutor of the church. He was a murderer. He would take people, Christians, from their homes, men and women, drag them out, beat them, and put them in jail. This was the life of Saul. But one day when he was on a road, Jesus met Saul. And Paul had this amazing conversion experience and was now called Paul. And so Paul is writing this letter because after that, after that conversion, he went on a missionary trip and he went to all these different cities around the Mediterranean. And he planted churches in every single city that he was going to. And so then uh, in the later years of Paul's life or in between missionary trips, he starts writing letters to these cities that he planted in. The letter to the Galatians is one of those that we get to read from today. And so we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be reading from verses 1 to 10, but we're starting off uh, just reading the first few verses. So we're going to be reading Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3 to start us off. And so this is part two of Paul's testimony. The, last week we talked about his conversion and what his life was like before his conversion, and this week we get to talk about his life post-conversion. And so it says, this is Paul again writing, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. 
taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. All right, so there's two people here that enter the scene that I want to talk about that are uh, not only important here to the context of the scripture, but are important to the New Testament in general. We see them mentioned a lot and talked about a lot in the New Testament, and so it's important just for us to understand who these people are. And the first person is Barnabas. Uh, and Barnabas, uh, if you were here during our series in Acts, we actually met Barnabas already. Uh, when we talked about how the gospel had affected how people viewed money, we read a story of two, uh, a, a kind of tale of two cities, but a tale of two different reactions. Uh, and the first reaction we read was of this guy named Barnabas. And Barnabas, when he started giving of his resources, it said that he sold his land and he brought all the proceeds to the church. And then we read about Ananias and Sapphira who sold their land but lied about how much they were giving to the church. But Barnabas is actually that guy that we talked about, that we were encouraged by, that we saw how the gospel had affected his life in a way that is really practical, that talks about giving. And so Barnabas's name is also, they called him the son of encouragement. And we can read about his introduction uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. That's where we first meet Barnabas. But later in Acts, we see that Barnabas is actually the man that introduced Paul to the apostles. See, when Paul converted, a lot of the Christians didn't believe that he was actually a Christian because they were scared of him. This was a man who had been persecuted, killing, and throwing Christians in jail that, that was his life pleasure. That's like he woke up in the morning and he was like, man, what am I going to do today? I'm going to throw some Christians in jail. Like that is, that is my goal today. That was Paul. So imagine, you know, somebody that, you know, you had a bully when you were a kid and this person just, you know, beat the tar out of you every day when you were at school, took your money. Uh, some of you, you were that bully uh, and... Then one day, you know, you're, you're older and you hear like, hey, this person wants to hang out with you again. And you're going to be skeptical. Like, why do you want to see me? I'm an adult now. Like, you can't ruin my life anymore. But you're still skeptical because there's this thought. So that's how it was like with the apostles and Paul. This was the chief bully. This was the guy that was persecuting, not bullying, but also killing and throwing them in jail. And so... But Barnabas actually becomes one of the co-ministers with Paul. And so he introduces him to the apostles. He vouches for him. And then Paul and Barnabas are sent out as a team to go and do ministry together, which is pretty cool. And the second person that we meet here is Titus. Titus is an interesting guy because Titus was a Gentile convert. So in the beginning of the church, when we read in Acts, we read that really the, the, the very foundation of the church was it was just a sect in Judaism. This was a bunch of Jewish people that had believed in their Messiah or their Christ. This really didn't venture out outside of Judaism. But then later on in Acts, Peter gets a revelation from God that, hey, this is also for the Gentiles. This isn't just for the Jewish people. This is Actually, my plan was for all people to be my people. And Jesus accomplished that. 
And so you can start preaching to the Gentiles. So Paul's job was to preach to the Gentiles. And one of these converts was a guy named Titus. And Titus later on is a pretty cool guy because Titus was Paul's representative to the Corinthians. We read about him when Paul writes to the Corinthian people. He sends Titus with him. Paul, uh, Titus is believed to be the first bishop of Crete. Uh, and we get that because Paul actually, one of our letters is to Titus himself. And so we get to read about uh, Paul's interaction with Titus later on. And Paul puts Titus in charge of setting up elders of the different churches in Crete. So he's a really cool guy. But Paul brings Titus with him because he's kind of like this um, test case of, hey, you guys have been hearing that a lot of Gentiles are being converted. When Paul goes to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles, he wants somebody that can show them that he is a Christian, yet he is not a Jew, which was a really big thing. And so Paul brings Titus along just as that kind of representative of the Gentile community, of the Gentile Christians, because when they're meeting, when Paul's talking about his meeting with the apostles here, it's in Jerusalem. So most of the Christians that they're encountering, if not all, are part of Judaism. And what we read here is that Paul is, he's going up to, to talk to the apostles, and there's a little bit of anxiety in his writing. There's a little bit of fear. But the, the fear and the anxiety is not about whether Paul's message was right. Because when he's going to Jerusalem, it's an important meeting that's about to happen. The unity of the church is at stake because these people have been going in. They've been going to the Galatian church, but they've been going a lot to other churches. And this kind of debate has risen up in the church. Can Gentiles be saved? But not only just be saved, but can they be saved and not become Jewish? That was a huge debate. It had very large implications, not only for people back then, but for us today. So when Paul was going into this meeting with the apostles, the anxiety, the fear was not whether he had been preaching the right gospel. He knew that the gospel, the, the message of Jesus that he had been preaching was correct. And we're going to kind of get into that more, what that is. What he was worried was that they would disagree and that it would cause a split in the church. That there would be now this group that is empowered to say no if you want to be a Christian, you also have to be a Jewish person, which means you have to be entered into the Jewish ritual rites. And then there are the ones that Paul is saying, which is you can be a Christian and not be Jewish. And so as we read in the next few verses, we have to understand that the unity of the church is at stake. And so Paul continues, he says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you. Right here, Paul alludes to a major theme. We actually just sung about this theme. Freedom. We're going to get into this a lot more as we dive into Galatians, because this is one of the major themes of the book. This is one of the major themes. Because when we understand the gospel, when we understand what Jesus has done for us, 
When we understand the, the message and the implications for our life, one of the things that we understand is that we are free people. What Paul says here is that he says th these people, what they're trying to do by getting the Gentiles to convert also to the Jewish traditions is he's saying that they are actually getting them to become slaves once more. Because when we live a Christian life that is about rules, is about law, and it is about work, things that will not save us, we actually live a life that is enslaved. When our Christianity becomes about what rules do I need to follow, when it becomes what, what work do I need to do, and that becomes the prerequisite for our salvation, then we actually walk around here as people who are in bondage, who are enslaved. And that's what Paul is saying. But Paul's saying the gospel, Jesus and his grace for us, that is actually what will save us. And that is what frees us. It's not our work. It's not how good we are. It's not our obedience to the law that brings us salvation, that brings us into the good graces of God. Actually, Jesus does all of that. Actually, because of his grace, we are saved, not because of our good deeds. So when the Jewish people are coming in and they're saying, well, Titus, yes, it's great that you accept Jesus and it's great that you believe in him, but now you have to be circumcised because... You have to follow the law of the Jews. What Paul is saying, I, what are you trying to say there? Let's think about these implications. Let's think about what you're saying. That Jesus plus this circumcision will actually equal salvation. So Jesus was not good enough on his own in order to save us. That Jesus plus things that we have to do actually save us. And what that is, that's a tendency of our heart that we're going to talk a lot about today and what Paul is talking about here, that we have to be our own saviors. Constantly in our life, if we look out for this, what we will see is that our heart will look to bring salvation to itself instead of looking to another who does it for us. And so let's continue to read in verses 6 to 10. It says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. We could preach on that for a little while, but we're going to move on. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You never thought you were going to hear the word circumcised so many times in church, I know. 
But the, the people of Israel used to, that was one of the main differentiations they had between them and the world was they were circumcised. And so they a lot of times referred to themselves as that type of people. I know it's interesting. I don't know. I wouldn't refer to myself as, as that. Uh, like, how do you identify yourself? Well, I'm circumcised. <laughs> Prove it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Welcome to Zion Church, everybody. <laughs> See, these people that were fighting Paul, they were really big on this. They were saying, no, it doesn't matter where you come from or what you've done. It doesn't matter who you believe in. It doesn't matter that you believe in him. What matters is that that is part of your religion or your belief. And so, yes, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but guess what? The, the sacrificial law, the ceremonial law, all, all the purification laws, you have to also follow that. You cannot just be a Gentile. You have to be a Gentile convert who is now Jewish and believes in God. But what happened here that was really important that we just read is that when Paul brought this case to the apostles, he came in saying, man, I hope that they agree with me. Not because he was worried that if they didn't, that he would have to change his message, but he was worried that if they didn't, it would split the church and we would have a split from the very foundation that would have lasted very long into today. But what happened is something amazing. The apostles agreed. They agree that you did not have to be circumcised. You did not have to be a Jewish convert in order to be Christian. What they were saying was, in Christ we find righteousness and atonement. Fully, in a way that the Jewish law could only do partially. Let me explain that. So I used to snowboard a lot. And if you've ever gone snowboarding even once, you know that it is an incredibly painful thing to experiment in. If, uh, you know, I, I always hear stories of people that if you've ever been, you know, skiing, it's like, fine, it hurts a little bit, go snowboarding for the first time. That is painful. Just go to the top of the mountain, don't take a lesson, and just come down. Just see what happens. It's a lot of fun. You will not be able to sit for at least a week. I can tell you from personal experience. But as a, as a teenager, I used to go a lot. I went snowboarding, my family would go skiing. And uh, I sprained every part of my body, literally. Like, I sprained my wrist, both of them twice. I sprained my ankles. Like, I sprained everything you can sprain on your body. I never broke anything. I don't know why. I just kept on spraining everything. But if you have a sprain, you have to, like, you need to get your sprain taken care of. Like, you need to put one of those stints on it, those things that, like, keep it still. It's, you don't get that full cast. You, you go to Rite Aid or your doctor, and they give you one of those things that you basically can't move your wrist. But I never did that. I was young. I was like, oh, I'll be fine. I'll sleep it off. And so to this day, if I put too much pressure on my wrist, it starts to hurt again because the sprain never fully healed. So what happened was I was able to sleep. I was able to just like not use it, not type, not play my video games as much. And I got partially healed. But if you use one of those stints, what happens is you get fully healed. You can use your wrist as normal, go weightlifting, you'll be fine. Pick up heavy things, you'll be fine. It doesn't matter, 10 years, whatever. But still, for me, 10 years later, it still hurts. And what's happening is 
the revelation that happened here is the Jewish law was great, but it was only a partial healing. It was only a, a partial subsidy for our sin. It could never fully wipe away everything. That's why it had to keep on going, keep on happening. They, they had things that happened every year, every month, every week. It, it was a continual process. It never ended because it was only a partial covering. But what Jesus did is he didn't abolish that. He didn't get rid of it. What he said is, I am the fulfillment of this. And what that meant is, what used to partially heal, I am now making fully heal. So in me, you don't any longer have to do the rituals and the laws and all this thing to be saved, to be healed, to be free, to live in the grace and relationship of God. But actually, I am the fulfillment so that all the righteousness that is needed in you, all the atonement that is required, all the debt that needs to be paid, I have fulfilled that. And what happens is when we start looking, when, when they started looking at circumcision, and they started saying, well, yes, Jesus is, is great, and we agree that you can believe in him. He's not just for us. But you actually have to follow these ceremonial laws. What it's saying is Jesus actually isn't a full healing. What actually, Jesus is a, a partial salvation. He is a band-aid over the cut. Because he, he's, let's say he's 70%. We'll give him, you know, a quite bit of margin. Circumcision is about like 15%. 10%, you know, is, is the clothes that you wear. And the other 5%, you know, let's say it's the food that you eat. And as long as you have Jesus plus the food that you eat, plus your, your ceremonial laws, plus, you know, the clothes that you wear, plus your circumcision, then when you have all of that, you have the fullness of what God has for you. But Paul was saying, actually, the fullness of what God had for us was delivered in Jesus. And what happens is when we start believing in an altered gospel for ourselves. We start saying to Jesus, well, actually, you're only a partial salvation for my soul. And I started to, to think about this, and I, it, it brought me to ask a question that I want to ask of us today that we're going to answer a little bit. And that question is this, what threatens the gospel for us today? For Paul back then and for the church at large, it was the pushing of the Jewish tradition to be part of the salvation process. And so some of the guys right now are reading this book from Keller. It's called Center Church. And he, he describes this really well. He says there's two things that really are, are contesting the gospel as we believe it today. And they are a liberal understanding of the gospel and a legalistic understanding of the gospel. And we're going to get into that for a second. So the first thing that we see that I think in our culture today that really fights with us to say that actually Jesus isn't the only way, isn't the savior, I think is liberalism or also relativism. And what this is, is this is grace without truth. What is grace without truth? Here's some things grace without truth would say. Jesus isn't the only way. There are many ways. There is no such thing as hell 
and no such thing as accountability or judgment. All religions are the same and lead to the same place. All people are saved no matter if they believe in God or not. The truth is what you want it to be. This is liberalism. This is relativism. It, it looks at you and it says, well, the truth is actually in you. So whatever you want the truth to be, that is what the truth is. And what that brings is it sparks things like universalism. And universalism says this, there's a mountain, and this mountain is religion. And at the top of the mountain, at the peak, is God. Now, Christianity is a path to that peak. But guess what? There's actually a lot of paths that lead to that peak. You can also say that, say, Buddhism is part of that leads you to a path that gets you to that peak. You can also say that, you know, nature is, gives you one of those paths that lead you to that peak. Meditation gives you one of those paths that lead you to that peak. Being a good person is one of those paths that lead you to that peak. And it's, it's one of these messages that's really popular. You get it on talk shows, on people like Oprah, somebody that, that writes a book. They, they now are a megachurch pastor because they said, guess what? There's no such thing as hell. And so they write books and they make money and they do all the talk shows. Why? Because people consume this because what it does is it validates our life, how we want to live, and how we believe it should be done. Instead of us saying, actually, there is a better way, and how I do things isn't the right way, I have to look to someone above me. And we don't like accountability. We don't like judgment. We don't like when someone tells us no. I, rem I remember I was, I was with uh, Judah, and we were in this place, and I said, no, Judah, you can't do that. And somebody said, you can't tell your son no. I was like, first of all, I can tell my son whatever the hell I want to tell my son, so back up for a second. <laughs> and second of all, that is the reason why we are where we are in a lot of things in our culture, because no one ever told us no. And this is something that is set deeply into the church because now it's like, oh, how is culture moving? Well, we're going to accept what culture says about things. Why? Because, well, as long as it feels good, as long, you know, God is, is grace. And you know what the truth of that statement is? Yes, God is grace, but grace without truth is not true grace. And so actually we tell culture no there aren't many ways to heaven. There's actually one way to heaven. There's only one way up that mountain. There's only one way through those doors. And that way is actually pretty narrow. It's not a wide gate. It's not a, a big path. It's not a huge thing that everybody gets on. But actually, it, it's, a, it's a hard path. It's a small path. It's something that is not the easy thing to do. It's not the relativist thing to do. It's not the thing where you look at yourself and the first thing that pops into your head, well, that's how... I'm going to get there. No. The second thing that really tries to take away the power of Jesus and what he's done is legalism. And that's what we're reading about here, actually, is legalism. 
Legalism is truth without grace. Legalism is this. All right, so I grew up in church. And when I was young, the, the cool thing to do was street evangelism. And so we would set up on Fifth Avenue in Sunset Park. We would get our amps, you know, we'd get our generator going. And we would do skits, we would do plays. It was amazing. We would do puppet shows. And it wasn't even a majority of people that were watching them were kids. It was grown adults that came to watch these puppet shows. Amazing. Um, and so... What we would do is after we would put on these skits, these puppet shows, we would do, someone would share their testimony and people would come up and respond to now living a life in Jesus. It was amazing. We saw a lot of fruit from it. A lot of incredible things happened. But one thing that also happened is that every time we did one of these, I would go up to receive Jesus. Every time. I was like, I was, I was one of those planted people for the altar call that in order for everybody else to come up, you had that one guy that kind of makes his way, and then everybody else, I was that plant. Like as a seven-year-old, you know, I was the first one walking up there. Because I knew that I had sinned that week, and because of that, I needed another second chance in my life. And I, I, that actually evolved in my life to praying every night before I would go to sleep. Jesus, would you please save me? Because I knew that I, I did things that were wrong that day, and so because of that, I wasn't going to make it into heaven. What was happening there was an, a false theology had come into my heart that said, Justin, you can actually get your own way into heaven. See, liberalism and legalism actually are very similar. They both say that you are the answer to get into heaven. You are the answer to your salvation. They just look differently in how they play out. And so what, what I was doing here is I was saying, as long as I'm good today, I don't need to pray that prayer of salvation at night because I was good enough to get into heaven on my own. Legalism says, as long as I am good, I am loved. My motivation to serve God is actually out of fear and anxiety. I don't know, you know, I was had a really hard day, and I messed up today, and man, if I died right now, I'm probably going to hell, and like it's, I, I got to make sure I do things right, because God is super mean and super evil, and if I mess up, then I'm definitely going to hell, and I'm definitely going to burn, I'm definitely going to suffer. Our motivation comes out of this fear of God's evilness that we contrive in our heads. So we actually look like great people when that is our thought. Why? We, we help the, the old lady cross the street because I'm filling in my good tab. We're, we're really nice to our coworkers. We, we stop cursing. We stop watching rated R movies. We stop doing all these things that on the outside they portray a really, really, really good Christian. But what Jesus said to the Pharisees is he said, you whitewashed tombs, which meant on the outside you look pristine, you look good, but on the inside there is death. And so we are motivated by this desire that it springs from our fear and our anxiety about hell or about God or about pleasing. And what's that saying again is, I can be good enough. To repay what God has done. Another thing that legalism says, it says, I obey to get things from God. I obey God because I want more money. I obey God because I want a happy life. I obey God because, insert your desire. 
And if you turn on the TV on Sunday, if you put on the radio on Sunday, this a lot of times is the message. This is why Christianity all of a sudden seems attractive to people. Because if you obey God, and I'm going to obey him because I was told if I obey him, I'm going to get this from him. I'm going to get a promotion. I'm going to lead the happiest life. I'm going to one day get that yacht and travel around the Caribbean. Sorry, that was me. And our, our desire is actually, I will obey God because, God, I heard that you got really good swag bags that you give me. You got really good goodie bags at the end of the party that I'll get. What does the gospel say? The gospel says, I am loved, therefore I obey. There's a difference there. It's not obedience first that causes God's love. We realize that God loves us first, and that causes us to want to obey him. My motivation to serve God is not out of fear. It's not out of anxiety, but it's out of grateful joy. It's out of a heart that says, God, I cannot believe what you have done for me. Have you ever had someone just do something nice for you? Your boss give you an extra day off. You had someone give you candy that you didn't expect or someone shared a meal with you. What happens? You just want to be nicer to that person. When you realize what God has done, that he's given you the ultimate gift, you realize that your motivation to serve him isn't because you want to get things from him, but it's actually out of grateful joy for what he's done. I obey God in order to get God. I don't obey him for things or for the, the, the special goodie bags that I feel like I should get, but I obey God because I realize I just want God. And I want to be closer and closer and closer to him. Because you realize that the best goodie bag that you can have at the end of the day is a deeper understanding, a deeper relationship, and a deeper love for who God is and what he's done. The gospel says Jesus is the only sacrifice that was perfect enough. Nothing and no one else can do it. Where we leave off today is this. Do you lean on a truth version of the gospel or do you lean on a grace version of the gospel? When Jesus says it's actually truth and grace. That truth without grace is not real truth, and grace without truth is not real grace. But the farther that we go along the truth spectrum and the farther that we go along the grace spectrum, we lose something about the gospel and its power because we lose what its message actually means. But my prayer for our church today is this. Father, center us on you. Center us on what you have done. So that in my life, when I want to elevate myself above you, when I want to think that I have a better way into heaven, when I want to think that I can be good enough to earn it on my own, when I want to say to myself that there's a way that I can make this path that you can't, when I want to add things to what you've done because I, I'm really saying you've only partially done it, Father, I pray that you would bring me to the center of your gospel. That you would remind me that it is only by you 
that I am saved. That is only because of what you've done that I can be in your presence. That you were actually the perfect sacrifice. That it isn't a law that I need to follow. It isn't a rule that I need to follow. But it is through you and only you that I get to make it to where you have called me to be. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Father, I thank you today that your gospel is sufficient in itself. That what you did requires nothing else. Lord, that the power needed to transform our life in order to live in freedom, in order to live as sons and daughters of you, in order to have a renewed mind, in order to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, all we need is what has already been done. God, help us to believe that this morning, that as our hearts tend to veer, as our minds begin to wander, as they inevitably will, because we are always looking for ways to save ourselves. Help us center our lives back on this one true statement. That it is only you that can save us. And it is only you that has saved us. Lord, let our hearts, let our words, let our actions be a testimony to the story of your incarnation of your suffering, of your death, of your resurrection, and of your ascension. That we would remember in our good times and in our bad times, whether we mess up or we were really good, that we remember only by your grace are we saved, are we in relationship with you. Father, do this in our hearts. Center us on your truth and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us worship together.